All right. Uh, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and open up your bulletin and uh, pull out some notes this morning. We're going to open up to John, spend a little bit of time in the Word, and then uh, this is a good Sunday. We get to go out and enjoy uh, just kind of the fellowship that's going on here. We want it to just bleed on out of the doors uh, into lunch and jump house and hanging out mode. So, yeah, that's what we're hoping to do this morning. Um, kids, we got some fun things planned for you this morning. Love it that uh, you get to join us this morning, uh, first Sunday of the month here at Neighborhood. We uh, we like to just keep keep the kids in here with us and enjoy uh, enjoy fellowship with them as well. Um, let me ask you this: How many of you in the room enjoy puzzles? Just by show of hand, just let me see if you like puzzles. Okay, a lot of puzzle likers. We have a five year old who loves puzzles and. Uh, I love sitting down with puzzles with, with her because um, I can do her kind of puzzles, you know, for like five and under. Those are my kind of puzzles. Um, anyone ever do a puzzle? I don't think I've ever done this, but anyone ever do a puzzle without ever looking at the picture on the box? Have you done that? My own mom's done that. I've never, I even know this thing. See, we learn things about things. So here's the thing with me. When I'm doing a puzzle, I'll tell you what keeps me going. As I'm sitting there struggling to find pieces that fit and we're hanging out doing a puzzle... What keeps me going is that there's a picture on the box that looks really cool. And it's like, I want to see that picture. And if all I had was a couple of pieces and not knowing how they fit and not knowing how they went, it would get kind of discouraging for me. Mind you, I'm a relatively impatient person, I guess, because I don't, I don't do puzzles super well. But I thought about this morning's passage and what Jesus offers to us. Jesus gives us this gift of perspective. Here's what, here's what he does. In a way, living life is like taking a puzzle piece and having it just right in front of your face where all you can see is that one puzzle piece. And in a way, it's just it's kind of blurry. And uh, if you're able to pull back and see the picture, it's a beautiful picture and you can see what, how that fits and where that's going. But living life, you don't get to see the picture on the box necessarily, do you? You see one puzzle piece at a time. The only thing that changes between seeing a puzzle up close like this where it looks pretty ugly And pulling it back is just a matter of perspective, right? And what Jesus is talking about in this passage this morning, he's going to use a a brilliant word picture that's applicable to all of us. But what he's going to offer to us is perspective. Instead of being up super close and instead of viewing life, and if you're here this morning and all you see is this, what Jesus wants to say to you this morning is this. Wait a minute, pull back and look look at all this. Let me remind you of this. There's a lot in the scripture that keeps saying to one another where we're to encourage to just remind one another of these things. Pull back and remember the big picture here. Some of us in this room really struggle with seeing the big picture. We tend to be really honed in on a single puzzle piece. We zoom way into a few pixels and we're just, we live our lives right there. And some of us have a hard time pulling back and seeing kind of the big picture. There's a universal truth that's applicable to everyone in this room. And this is the very reason why Jesus' message to us today is going to work for everyone for all of time. And here's, here's two factors I know about every one of you. One is this, that every one of you at some point in your life has been a real pain. Probably more than one time. But at least one time in your life, a real pain. Secondly, at one point in your life, you all look like a slimy alien. Ah. You were newborns, Right? Every single one of you at some point in your life was born. And by that virtue alone, you caused pain 
and you looked rather alien. Um, because we have children in here, I don't want to shock you kids. I was going to use a PowerPoint image of a newborn. Now, I can stomach that. That's fine. I was never one of those guys that fainted in the hospital. But I thought, you know, I better not show it because um, it's some shocking self-revelation of how you looked when you started off. i got to say, it's not cute. It's not pretty. No one wanted to snuggle you except mom and a nurse that was paid to do it. So the whole deal with women in labor, though, uh, is this. Uh, by the way, if you'll take a look at your, at your, uh, your cover this morning, some of you are getting that title. Some of you are not. Here it is. Ready? Okay, that's what that is. Encouragement for those in labor. Some of you are like, he, 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 who? You know, is this Abbott and Costello? What's, what's going on here? It's a, it's a breathing thing. Women in labor, I mean, sure, it's hard on the ladies, but it's really hard for the guys. It's just confusing. I mean, let's face it. It's just a difficult time for us, guys. We don't know what's going on. Our wives are transforming before our, our very eyes. Um, I was taught in, in birthing class, we had this, uh, we had this woman teach us some, some breathing exercises. And so, um, you know, I'm just wanting to be a great dad and wanting to really help Becky with things. So I'm really paying attention in class and learning the breathing and all this stuff. And, um, and what she described in class was that, you know, contractions would come and there's this little readout that you get to see and they would be there for a while and then they would go down. And she was saying, now some of you, you know, men, even if it's still up, you know, tell her it's going down. And Becky turns to me and she's like, I want the truth. You know, I'm like, yes, dear. Permanent ink, I'm like, the truth, you know. I mean, I'm taking copious notes on my wife to make sure I get it right. So uh, we're, we're in the room with our first child, and, um, and nothing prepared me for what was about to happen because, you see, she started to get contractions. And in class and in theory, it goes up. And this is pain, by the way. This is no pain. Kids, you don't know this, but you'll see. This is no pain. This is pain. So the little reed would go up, and I'm like, looking at my wife, looking at the monitor. Yep, they're working. You know, (laughs) she looks like she's in pain. You know, and then uh, and then it goes down after a little season, and then some little time goes by, and then it goes up again. Okay, you with me? This is birth. This is labor. This is how you came to be, children. Here's how. Here's how Becky started to go. Becky's went up. It's still up. It's still up. And so I'm doing everything I've got. I'm throwing out every trick in the book. Nothing prepared me for 25-minute contractions. I mean, these things that were going on. And and I was like, this is broken. Something's wrong, you know. I got nothing. I was hyperventilating by this point. (laughs) You know, trying. I'm just rereading my notes. I I didn't have anything left, you know. Uh, it's just, it's very, very difficult for us. So, um, ladies, please bear with us during that time. Um, here's what I did this, this week. I sent some, uh, an email out to a few of you moms. I just asked for some stories. So you're going to hear some, some stories from some moms, um, from neighborhood Bible church. I just wanted labor and delivery stories. And, uh, and this one, this one from the Hendersons was, was cracking me up. It said this, uh, when I was in labor with Scott, who's sitting right here, um, Our good friend Jack was in the room with us. He and Rich were kind of goofing around, and Jack put a surgical glove on his head, including over his nose, and started blowing it up like a chicken. (laughs) Then she writes this. The first time, it was kind of funny. But as my contractions got stronger, it was stupid, annoying, and definitely not funny anymore. (laughs) 
He got the message and knew it was time to leave. Any man who's been in there where his wife's having a baby knows that tone of voice and how it changes. Funny chicken early on, not so funny later on. Like I said, very confusing for men. They turn to humor. They don't know what to do. We're, you know, we're making chicken things out of gloves. Uh, open up to John chapter 16. And uh, we're going we're gonna to read a little bit here this morning. We're not going to be able to read every last ounce of this passage. That's what community groups are for. And that's what owning your own Bible is all about. Um, par- uh, kids, you ever, you ever be thoroughly confused with what your parents are talking about? They're giving you instruction. They're saying things. Yeah. Definitely, right? You're, they're talking and you're just going, huh? You just don't know what's up. My kids? No, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, of course it's true. Every kid feels that sometimes. You're just going, I don't know what you're talking about. I know you're trying to communicate something to me, but it's just going right over my head. But here's what's exciting about reading the Bible is you're not alone. The disciples felt exactly the same way when Jesus would be talking to them much of the time. They'd be sharing, he'd be sharing something really important. They get that it's important and they're just not getting it. Follow along with me, if you will, in your Bible, uh, starting in verse 16. And mind you, this is again just an upper room conversation. He and his disciples are hanging out together. Uh, the, the tone and nature of what's coming is, is that something big is, is going to happen really, really soon. And his disciples get that. They can read his body language. They can see in his voice that he's really stressed and that something's coming, coming up. Verse 16 says this of John chapter 16. Jesus talking. In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by in a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Kids, you can relate to that, right? Verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? So Jesus is sitting here speaking, and if you're like me, even as you reread this, you side more with the disciples than with Jesus. Jesus talking often is in this veiled sort of way. Our entire series that we've been talking about up here has been called Decent Exposure. And the reason for that is this. As you read through the Gospel of John, if you're honest, you don't just read it through with kind of a cursory read and say, yeah, I get, I get the gist of what Jesus is saying. I understand what he's talking about most of the time. Much of what he says is, is veiled. And there are certain times where as we go through the Gospel, John, the author, will write in a little commentary that's after the fact, he'll say the disciples didn't know what he meant when he said this. But they understood after he had raised from the dead. Or the disciples, as they were going along, didn't understand what was happening. But afterwards, they understood what was going on. Well, John was one of those disciples. He lived that firsthand. And he didn't understand. But it made sense as he looked back on it and recounted it. Decent exposure is used because the word decent means this, respectable, good, worthy. There are some things worth diving into and discovering and soaking your mind in. There are some stories worth telling and worth thinking about and meditating on. And this is certainly one of them. But decent also means this. It means adequate, fair, passable, enough. 
The reason Decent Exposure is a great title for this series is that so often Jesus gives us just enough. He doesn't give us the whole box picture puzzle. All he does is give us just a few more pieces of that puzzle. And as the disciples go along with him for three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry, they're getting just almost passable information. And there's so many times where Jesus could have come right out and said, here's who I am, and he could have used some miraculous power, but he chose not to, and he would would withhold it. And remember this drumbeat that's been going on in John? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And he seems to be pointing to this time. And all of a sudden, starting in around verse, uh, chapter 15 of the book, he says this, My hour has come. Now Jesus is about to use this word picture. And I don't even have to look for other illustrations. I get to just latch on to what Jesus used because it's brilliant. But just like Jesus saying, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then he starts saying, My hour has come. That's him essentially saying, Honey, it's time. Things are set in motion now, and it's time. Things are, things are happening. Truth is veiled, but it's not unsure. I thought about truth and pregnancy, and I thought about the fact that there are some real similarities to truth and pregnancy. Truth and pregnancy both share a common trait of being absolute. There's many that would say there's no absolute truth, but when they go to their, to their bank, they want absolutes. They want absolutes when it comes to their money, for sure. They don't want it wishy-washy. They don't really care about the teller's opinion about their account. They want facts. They want absolute truth. Pregnancy is very similar. Can you be sort of pregnant? No. Right? You can be in the dark about whether you're pregnant, but you're either pregnant, yes, or you're not. And there's data there that supports yes, you are, or no, you aren't. Truth and, and pregnancy are similar in that way. The problem is that some people don't invest too much in the search for truth, do they? Many of us, in fact, I think are, are lulled by entertainment and lulled, lulled away from thinking about important things until a bomb goes off in our life from really going after truth and saying, I want to discover this. I want to think on this. I want to chew on this. I was at the dollar store this week with my son and, um, and I saw a pregnancy test at the dollar store. Now, if you bought your pregnancy test at the dollar store, I'm not trying to rip on you, but let me just say this. If you're going to buy a pregnancy test at a dollar store, I mean, you know, if Becky came to me and said, honey, we're pregnant, maybe. I mean, I spent a buck on the thing. I don't really even know if it worked. Most things at the dollar store break after 10 minutes, right? Have you noticed this? I mean, that's why it's the dollar store. We understand that. If you're going to buy a pregnancy test at the dollar store, I mean, if, if you're looking for the answer, I would think that five, six bucks, scrape it together, get a more definitive answer. Don't go, you know, don't go generic dollar store on the pregnancy test. Some people's search for truth is very similar to that. Their search for truth is a fortune cookie, huh? a horoscope. I'm going to meet someone new today. I should take that job. How do you know? My lotto numbers told me. What? Are you serious? Some people come and try out church. They say, I've been to church. I've tried church. I go, how did you like it? Oh, I didn't like it very much. You ever been back? No. How many times did you try it? I tried it once. And in their mind, what they've said is this, I've tried on God. I've tried religion. It doesn't work for me. In a way, that's like flipping out a buck for a, for a pregnancy test and going, eh, maybe. You're not very convinced by it. You're not going to change your life course by something like that. 
the whole kind of gist of this passage is Jesus' answer to the disciples as they're asking this question about this statement that he just made. Would someone be a servant and get me a water? Are these waters back here, Rob, that I can have? Yeah, when I was Thank you, Rob. <laughs> See, now here's, here's wisdom and choice. Partly full, untouched, and sealed. See, that's wisdom. <laughs> Just right on the spot, freebie. That's not even in the text. We just can figure that out. All right. Um, look at verse 20. Here's, here's what Jesus is basically going to say is this. There is a coming season of grief. He's, made, he's, just, he's not pulling any punches on this. He's letting them know. You are about to have some really bad times ahead. And then it's going to be followed by joy. Look at what he says in verse 20 of chapter 16. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. I've got kind of a central truth in your outline. If you want to fill it in, you can write this in. It's this. It's that the grief that we bear is worth it for the joy to come. The grief that we bear is worth it for the joy that is to come. If you've lived life with the Lord for any length of time, you know this, that God does not take away trials. He doesn't take them away. You don't become a Christian, profess faith in Christ, and everything gets better in your life. Many times it gets worse here on earth. He doesn't take away our trials, but he really does strengthen the disciple through hard and difficult times. This morning, my hope and my prayer for you this week is that your trust in God through suffering and through grief and through all kinds of trials and confusion would grow this morning. One of the three really big ideas that we have with our children is this. There's a really big God that you can trust no matter what. And we as adults need to know that same message that we're trying to drive home to our children. Last week we talked about being a pneumonot, which is a sailor amongst the wind, pneuma, wind, breath, spirit, the word that the New Testament uses for the Holy Spirit of God. And maybe a pneumonot translation of what Jesus is saying is something like this. It's not advancing, Carl. Can you help? Oh, there we go. That smooth seas do not make skillful sailors. Isn't it true that when things are going well, all you are is in danger of becoming lax? All you are is in danger of being puffed up that you've got it together. All you are is in danger of taking the wide road that leads straight to hell. Does that mean you shouldn't enjoy good times? No, you should relish them and enjoy them and receive them as a gift from God, knowing that we were not made for just unending good times here on earth. That's what heaven is for. And that now is our season of grief. Before I get too much further, let me say this by way of preface. I tread, I tread lightly this morning. Because in some ways, on at least two different levels, I don't know what I'm talking about. And here's what I mean by that. 
I'm talking about pain and suffering, and we're going to laugh a little bit this morning. We're going to enjoy ourselves a little bit this morning. And it's not to make light of your in, incredible suffering and pain. It's one thing to talk about pain and suffering as a philosophy writer in a class or to talk about it in a, in a church setting. It's a different thing to be bedside with someone who's suffering, isn't it? It's different when you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. And we're talking about this. And I recognize this morning that some of you are in that exact spot. So when I laugh and when we make some jokes and when we have some hilarity in the room this morning, it's not to make light of that. I say I don't know what I'm talking about on two different levels. Here's what I mean. Do I know about pain? Yes, of course I do. I'm alive. I was born. But I don't know about your pain. My pain and your pain are so very, very different. And part of getting to know one another is just to get to hear their story and know their story. I've enjoyed being in many of your homes and just gotten to hear some of the hurts and heartaches that have helped shape your walk with God and your journey on faith. That's part of what makes us up is our scars and how God used those to prod us and change us and grow us into into who we are and who we are becoming. So I know about pain, but I don't know about your pain. Secondly, I know about childbirth, but I only know about it from a front row seat and not the hot seat, so to speak. So I'm going to talk about labor and delivery because we know it's a little bit of a common thing. And I've seen my fair share of labor and delivery, I guess. But I don't really know it in the same way that women in this room would know and understand who have been through that. Women in labor and Jesus in suffering. Let me just throw out a couple of similarities. We talked, touched on this already, but this whole idea of, of, of a woman's time coming, she knows that things are progressing to a certain conclusion. And as you think about this overlaid on Jesus' ministry, think about how Jesus talks. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And just look at the progression of things. You get the sense Jesus knew he was pregnant, so to speak. Jesus knew that things were happening and moving right along in order for the end result to come, which was the cross and misery and death and suffering so that new life could be born. The similarity for Jesus and a woman in labor is that labor pain is expected and a necessary part of the process. Another similarity is the joy that far outweighs the pain and that new life was only possible for each one of us born, thank you, Mom, due to the pain that was endured. And new life in Christ was only possible through the suffering and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that's why we celebrate. So it is with you as a Christian. Grief is normal, expected, and necessary, and joy is sure, but it's also second. It's after. Any joy that we get kind of here is kind of a bonus gift. And if that bums you out, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that you think too much of this world and too much of our time here on this world. And if you're like me, you need to constantly re-soak your brain in the picture on the box and not to get too wrapped up in what's here and now. I want to talk about grief for a little bit and what kind of grief that there is. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. It's right near the very back of your Bibles. And 1 Peter chapter 4 is going to shed some light on suffering and pain for us. Maybe you're here this morning or you've gone through a season of pain of late. And you've asked this question, where is God in all of this? Maybe you've wondered aloud to a friend 
to yourself and just said, why isn't God near in my suffering? I'm really hurting here. God, if you know all, how come you're not right here with me? Why aren't you delivering me from this pain and suffering? You know, that's a universal question. We're not the only ones asking that. I don't care what time you lived in. I don't care what culture you've lived in. And we've had people in our midst who've lived in other cultures for extended periods of time. It's there. It's a universal question that people ask. Here's what I would throw out to you, because the scriptures throw this out, is that not all pain is gain. There's different kinds of pain. There's different kinds of suffering. And when you're in suffering, when you're in pain, it's good to pay attention. So many in our culture have learned to just blot it out, forget about it, push it aside, and not learn from it, not ask questions, and not grow from it. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, shares some things. 1 Peter is a book. This is a guy first-hand encounter with Christ. History tells us that Peter refused to be crucified like Jesus. And so instead he asked if he could be crucified upside down, and they obliged. So he gave his lifeblood for what he believed in. He knew a thing or two about suffering. Go read the book of Acts. The book of Acts shows Peter suffering and knowing what he's talking about. He writes this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. He's writing to Christians. His dear friends he's talking about is the church. Those who belong in the family of, of, of God by the blood of Christ. Friends, Christians, believers, don't be surprised at the, at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer... It should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Don't you love how he puts murder or thief right on the same plane as a meddler? Don't suffer for any of those wrong things. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. A couple of bullet points that we're going to draw out of this and then apply it back to John chapter 16. One is this, pain, suffering, trials are normal and expected. We're told in this passage that we should be rejoicing in the midst of suffering and pain and trials. Thirdly, they produce an everlasting, wonderful joy. That's the same exact thing Jesus is teaching us here. And finally, it kind of qualifies types of suffering, types of grief that are out there. Is all pain gain? No. Is grief good? I would say this. Grief is good sometimes. Not always. Sometimes grief is bad. Here's, 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 let's go back to the woman in labor for a moment. Okay? Let's say that a woman in labor is, is entering her time. Her time has come, so to speak. And she's laying there and she's starting to feel pain. She's also quite fearful because this is her first child. Let's say that this woman's normal M.O. is to eat a box of Twinkies whenever she gets stressed out, bummed out, freaked out by anything. Give me an entire box of Twinkies and let me eat it. Now, let me ask you, is pain expected during labor and delivery? Yes. 
If you don't like screaming, don't be a nurse in the labor and delivery room. It's going to be there, right? That's normal. However, how is this woman going to feel? uh, What kind of pain will she feel if right prior to her hour coming in that hospital bed, she eats an entire box of Twinkies? It will take her pain and it will multiply it, right? By however many Twinkies she eats. Now, here's, here's what I'm getting at. Pain is expected, but that kind of pain is unnecessary. And that was going to comfort in things. And while it's easy to look at a woman in labor and say, that's really dumb. You shouldn't eat a box of Twinkies before labor. Sometimes what we do is the same sort of a thing. Let's say another woman says, ah, Twinkies aren't my thing, but I like to be in control of things. I like to be calling the shots. I like to know what's happening. And I like to be the one in charge every time and every moment. And by the way, I don't take orders from no one. She's going in. She's about ready to deliver her baby. You know what's going to happen in that room? She's going to be receiving input from people. And if her deal is, I don't take, I don't answer to anyone. I'm the one in charge here. And she pushes away all that help. And someone says, you need to just relax. You relax. I'm not going to relax. I'm going to stay tense. Okay. (laughs) Stay tense. Don't tell me to stay tense. I'll do what I want to do. Fine. It's not fine. You know, whatever. And if she's just going to argue and then someone comes in to help, you know, to help with things and it's time to push. Don't tell me to push. It's going to be painful for this woman. But as an outsider looking in and seeing both of those women, what you would say is this. That kind of pain kind of was brought on by themselves. Pain and labor is to be expected. That kind of pain is over and above bonus pain. It's akin to those who are asking for prayer about something in their life, but really what they need to do is be asking for repentance and seeking repentance of God. Here's what I'm getting at. Much of the pain in our life is sin. You don't need to pray about sin. You don't need to ask God to, to, to handle your sin through prayer and God, you know, do this or that for me. You need to repent and stop sinning, and that pain will go away. Is pain expected and normal for a woman in labor and delivery? Of course it is. Is eating a box of Twinkies part of the gig? No. Don't eat the Twinkies. Ladies, please, don't eat the Twinkies before labor. I don't know of anyone who's done this, so I think it's a fair joke. All right, let's move on. Much of our grief is due to sin. Here's, uh, look at verse 31 for a second. For some people who like to, to, to control things, here's the repentance action item. Their prayers may center on something like this. God, please make that person come around and start obeying my every whim. Lord, please work this situation out. There's a little nuance of detail around the bend about my summer vacation that I can't figure out and can't have control of. And as they try to play God, God is not going to give up his seat on the throne and give it to this person who's asking for all of this in prayer. What this person needs to do is seek repentance for being a control freak and for trying to play God. What a person who's struggling with control issues, really it's a faith issue. You have such a small view of God that that he can't handle what's coming that you've never learned to rely on and to trust in the Lord. And so really it's a faith issue. It's a small view of God. It's no trust, no faith. Look at verse 31 in our, in our passage back in John now. Go back to John 16. As Jesus continues talking to them and speaking about a few different things which we'll get into, verse 29 says, Then the disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. 
Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not need to have anyone ask you a question. This makes us believe that you came from God. So they're saying, I mean, kind of like right the night before he's about to go be put to death on the cross. Now we believe. And Jesus says this, you believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has now come when you will be scattered, each, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. What he knows is this, is that the disciples too had this yearning and this hunger to want to be in control and know what's coming next and know how it's all going to go down. We know that you're, you're the Messiah. Do we get to be sitting on your left or right? Let's bring mom into it. And they keep peppering Jesus with all this stuff. They've got a little bit of control freak in them, don't they? They don't have a trust in Jesus. And finally they say, okay, now we trust you, now we believe. And Jesus goes, good job. Actually, in a few moments, at the very first whisper of trial and suffering, you're going to bail on this whole thing. You're going to leave me in my hour of need. Because Jesus knows what's going what's to happen. Some are seeking comfort in things. Maybe a box of Twinkies is not how you, how you roll. What you like to do is X, Y, Z. Shopping and going and buying things to kind of get your mind off things or comfort yourself in a really difficult situation is what you do. For some, it might be sports, watching it on TV or going and engaging in it. For some of you, it may be getting out of the house. You don't like to deal with what's going on in your house, so it's easier to just leave. So that could look like long hours at the office. That could look like long hours at a place down the street. Whatever. You fill in the blank. But if you're comforting yourself with things, what's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit we've been looking at? He's our comforter. If in our time of need, when pain comes on, we run to a box of Twinkies instead of God's Holy Spirit, we're in sin. God, would you please bless these Twinkies? Just multiply them. Let them never, ever run out. You see how that's a weird prayer? We shouldn't be asking and praying about that. We should be seeking repentance. God, wean me from Twinkies. I don't want Twinkies anymore. Let me enjoy you rather than running to whatever that might be. How about slandering? Slandering is one the Bible talks about a lot. Sometimes slandering and gossip come in the form of prayer requests, don't they? I don't want to be a church guilty of this. Praying. We need some prayer requests. Let me tell you about Sally Susie and, you know, over here of this person. And it's all in this effort to kind of diffuse and put other people down and build ourselves up. We don't need to ask for prayer in that. We need to seek repentance. Guess what? All of these that I've just mentioned, and I could go on, pride, anger, lust, laziness, being a busybody, being a critic, being self, self-loathing, being hypocritical. Surely I've stepped on your toes by now. I mean, that's, this is what the Bible does. It lays all these out. These are straight from God's Word. These are the things we struggle with. This is sin. And guess what? All of this sin equals grief. It all leads to grief. Is there good grief? Yes. We'll get to that in a second. Is there bad grief? Absolutely. When you slander someone, if I were to right now slander Sharon Adam, and it were to get back to me, and she said, man, Dave, I can't believe you said this. It would cause grief in my life. Now, I could pray in that moment, God, please just help Sharon see the error of her ways. And I feel really bad. She really chewed me out. That feels bad. Would you please comfort me? I shouldn't be asking for that. 
I should be agreeing with God about my sin. I should be broken and repentant. And I should go back and restore relationship with, with Sharon and ask for an apology and seek resolution and say, Sharon, I really blew it on this one. That's bad grief. That's how you deal with it. Praise God for the gospel that allows us to, to deal with sin and junk in our life. Here's what good grief looks like. Good grief is this. I just started going through the scriptures. And again, I would really encourage you as we're looking at the Holy Spirit and as we're looking about suffering and grief and all this kind of stuff, to see it fleshed out, read, read the book of Acts. It's a great place to be studying as kind of a complement to what we're in with John because you'll see all of this. Here's one kind of grief that's really good, insults. Ever been insulted for the name of Christ? We heard from Rhonda a couple weeks ago. And she was just flat out insulted because she stood up and testified that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way to God? Are you kidding me? That's very unpolitically correct. How dare you say that? You don't really believe this, do you? When, when you stand up for truth, I promise you, insults will follow. Insults are part of the deal. Testifying, as we read earlier in the scriptures, we testify and the Holy Spirit testifies. And we're on the same team and we're working on this. But I'll tell you what it brings. It brings disdain. It brings judgment. It brings name-calling. It brings all kinds of maligning talk about you. And it can come in very subtle, sophisticated forms. But it's no different than two kids on a schoolyard just name-calling and coming around you and picking on you. Here's another one, mocking. We're told in scriptures not to be ashamed of the gospel. Ever felt the sting of being ashamed of the gospel? I have walked away from a conversation and the Holy Spirit has immediately convicted me. You were ashamed of me right back there. And what I've, what I've realized is the sting of that is actually more weighty in my life than the sting of rejection, mockery, and insults that will probably come if I look like a whack job and share some of what I believe. And so I, so I try to remind myself in that situation again, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation to everyone who believes. And guess what? Most people will probably reject it at first hearing, at second hearing, at third hearing. We're, it's All that does is confirm our state of sin, our state of rebellion to God. But keep on preaching the gospel. It's the power of salvation. Finally, threats, punishment, abuse. Luke, Luke 12, 14, Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is talking here about little fear and big fear. Kids, would you be afraid if on a schoolyard some giant kid, freakishly giant kid, who has a reputation for beating people up just for looking at them the wrong way, came up to you and said, give me your lunch money. And you said, no, sir. Would that scare you? It would scare me. And I'm an adult. I could probably take this kid down. That's scary, right? It's scary to be threatened by someone, have someone come up and threaten to bully you or push you or anything like that. You know what God's saying here? Jesus says this. That's a little fear. That's a little fear. I know it feels like a really big fear because we're in a puzzle piece and we're looking at it super close like this. It looks really big. It's a little fear. Don't fear people. Fear God. 
What can people do to you? They can destroy your body. All of our bodies are being destroyed one day anyways. Is it a real fear? Absolutely. But is it the ultimate fear? Not even close. Proverbs says that fearing God is the starting point of wisdom. Know who you should fear. Know about little fear and know about big fear. Doesn't this sound a tiny bit like little grief and big grief, little joy and big joy? Let me ask you this. What if someone offered you this today? What if you looked at this and they said, hey, I want to offer you joy? You might look at that and say, that looks pretty good. I think I'll take that. What if what you didn't see because you were a little bit too close and didn't have any perspective was that what they were really offering you was this? I don't know if you can still see it, but joy is still there. But the grief that's next to it is huge by comparison. Now, what if someone else came along and said, you know what, I've got a better deal for you. I'll offer you this right here. And when on first glance what you see because you're so close to it is you see grief right in front of your face. Jesus came offering grief. That's not a common message in churches today, but it's true. I offer you grief now. Pull back. Way back. Look, look what the eternal, look what, look what lasts forever. It's joy. I mean, just like the water. See, the water fits in. Opened, little amount of water that someone else's germs have been on. No, thank you. Brand new water bottle. Absolutely. Easy choice, right? Little joy, big grief, or little grief, big joy. It's an easy choice if you can pull back and have perspective on it. And Jesus gives us perspective. Not only does he use this idea of a woman in childbirth, he said this so many different ways, but I just pick, we'll, we'll, I'll just pick one found in Matthew. He said it this way, what good is it? What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? That's a bad trade. That's a bad offer. Don't take it. I thought about Moses. Long before Jesus was here, the eternal spirit was at work in the life of Moses. And listen to how Hebrews describes Moses' life. It says that he chose. There's our choice. We get to choose. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. You know what the little while is on at least some level? It's our life. You will suffer for a little while. That little while is our life. Other places in Scripture talk about this. But it's that grief that spans this much of time and if you could pull back and see the big picture, it's worth it for the joy. Let me close by just bringing up some birthing do's and don'ts that you can follow along with in your notes if you'd like. What are we to do for those of us who are in labor, so to speak? One is this. The first thing is to encourage, don't sympathize with someone who's in labor. Sympathy is fantastic and great, and it's even a biblical great quality. But in labor, it's not the same. Imagine this guy running right here. If someone signs up to be a marathon runner, this is the real deal. This is a guy who's running a marathon. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were his buddy next to him, okay, and you came up to that guy and you said, Ooh, that's got to hurt. 
Woo! You look like you're having trouble breathing. Ah, it stinks to be you. Don't you wish you could stop? You know what? Right in a couple minutes, I'm going to go grab a cheeseburger, but you've got to keep running. Bummer. I'm so sorry for you. You know what? That's not what the guy wants to hear right there. Okay? If you're the guy running, and you've got... That guy looks like a coach. He's got a tracksuit on. I don't know. But he's running along. Here's what, you'd, here's what you'd rather hear from someone like this is this. You can do this. Keep on. Go. You're in the lead right now. Just keep pressing on. You've got this. The finish line is right around the corner. It's encouragement, right? It's pressing that person forward, not sympathy. The same thing with the woman in labor. The same thing with a person as a Christian is to come alongside as a Christian community and go, oh, you poor thing. You got mocked at work for being a Christian? Why, this is strange and odd. Let's throw a party, a pity party. No, that's not what's needed. What's needed is encouragement and say, welcome to the club. You must really be taking a stand. How to encourage, just a couple of quick things. The Bible, uh, Psalm 119, verse 50, just write this verse down. My comfort in my suffering is this. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. God's word is a great source of comfort because it constantly paints that picture box of the puzzle for us. Here's where it's all headed. And you have to trust that someone designed this puzzle, put it together, and this piece really does fit. I'm going to work this out for my glory, even if you can't see it right now. The Bible reminds us often what is true and what is real. Not only is the Bible one way to encourage yourself in labor or encourage someone else who's in labor, but community is so vital to this. The reason the Bible is unflinching in its command to be in community is because God knows we are not designed to bear this alone and go this alone. We need input from other people. Listen to Hebrews 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You know this is what's supposed to be happening, whether it's large group church or small group church. It's all church. It's body life. It's coming together and pouring courage into someone. Encourage. Come along and spur one another on and push them forward. Pour courage into your family this week, your spiritual family, at community group. When someone comes and says, I think God might be calling me to quit my job and do this. Sometimes church people are the first ones to throw a wet blanket on that and say, that's totally irresponsible. You shouldn't do that. I remember as a youth pastor getting so frustrated because parents on one side of their mouth would be saying, we want you to teach our kids all about God. But then when I taught them about the God of the Bible and their, and their kids would come back saying, man, I'm not really convinced that college and the executive life is for me. I feel like God might be calling me to the mission field. I feel like God wants me to do something on the other side of the globe. I feel like God's calling me to inner city. I feel like God's calling me to the poor and the destitute. I feel like God's calling me on a campaign to help those who can't fight for themselves, orphans around the world. These same parents would get all freaked out by that. Say, whoa, 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 let's not take this thing too seriously. College, job, good manners, that's what we want. 
That's not the God of the Bible, though. That's the God of this world and comfort and little joy and eternal grief. Let's comfort one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's keep pointing people toward the big picture. Aside from uh, encouraging versus sympathizing, I would toss this out to you. Let right thinking guide your actions and don't act on what you feel in the moment. For those of you who have not been in labor yet, here's somewhat of a cycle that happens. There's fear. There's tension. There's pain. Repeat. And then it just goes over and over. And that's labor. And some women had five hours of labor. Some who don't live to tell long had two hours of labor or a half hour. Some have 18, 20, and 30 and these really big, long hours. You know what? Your pain and suffering, I don't know about your pain and suffering. Your hour, your in a little while, I don't know how long it will last or how intense it will be. It will be a little bit different for each person. But I do know that right thinking guiding your actions versus what you feel in the moment is really, really important. Here's what acting on feelings in labor could result in. It could result because a woman feels like it in the moment. She might maim a nurse who's trying to help her. Now, normally, she'd be a very loving and nice person, but in that moment, I've seen this happen. She might punch a husband. She might, just because she's in labor, run out of the hospital screaming, which is bad for a number of people and a number of reasons, not to mention the baby who's trying to get out. But in that moment, you might feel like doing something that isn't wise to do right in that moment. My wife and our first child was born. She looked at me, and I knew both of us had talked about this beforehand. I knew she wanted um, several kids, and both of us had talked about kind of wanting a large family. And she looked at me, and she, she's never been more convincing or convin- you know, convicted about something. She looks at me right in the eyes, and I'm, <laughs> that's all I had. You know, I'm breathing with her or whatever. And she looks at me, and she says, never again. Men, write this down. Here's the right answer. Yes, dear. (laughs) Always the right answer in that moment, okay? Do I sound really fuzzy and like I'm in a, yeah. Could you bring me another battery? We're going to be here for another hour. Um, (laughs) Kidding. Here's what she said, though, and this illustrates this, this picture beautifully. The second that Curran, our oldest, was born, um, you going to handle this, Rob? Rob is multi-talented, to tell you. The second that Curran was born, my wife, my loving bride, we good? You got me? Hey, I'm back. I'm like the jack-in-the-box guy. (laughs) Can I take your order? Um, My wife gets handed our firstborn. Mind you, he's alien-like. He's slimy. He does not look beautiful. Because of some crazy things, they had to screw something into his head. This was not how I drew it up in my dreams. My wife looks at me, same one who moments ago said never again. She looked at me, no joke, and she said, I want ten more of these. (laughs) Men, what's the right answer? Yes, dear, right? Now, I'm so thrilled on both accounts that she hasn't acted on, on both of those impulses. But here's why right thinking is so critical. 
is that right thinking can override what you're feeling in the moment. And when you're in grief and suffering, you know yourself. You're not thinking straight. You're not thinking clear. Here's some, here's some homework for the community groups. There's all kinds of doctrine. And doctrine is just right thinking. Here's some doctrine found just in our passage that our community groups are going are gonna to chew on. The, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, the fact that we have direct access to God and no intermediaries are necessary, is built into this. That's a right-thinking, doctrine kind of thing that you need to be convinced about and know about so that when you don't feel it, it's still there. The fact that Jesus came from God to earth and was returning to God was a definitive declaration of him being a divine, eternal being. That's foundational to everything we believe as Christians. That one goes out the window, we're done here. I would dismiss and never come back. That's right-thinking. That's good doctrine. But lest we be a church that's just all about good doctrine and right thinking, it's also about right application. It's right acting on what you know to be true. And so let me just close with this. The third thing is this. Visit the hospital, don't live there. Right thinking says, I've got things that I know to be true, whether in my up and down emotion of it, whether I'm in a contraction or not in a contraction, whether my contraction lasts way longer than other people's and doesn't seem normal, that God's still there. And that God said this was coming. Look with me at the bottom of what we were looking at today, the very last verse of chapter 16, John 16, 33. Jesus says, I have told you these things. So that in me, you may, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Hospitals are temporary. One woman in our, in our church shared a story about the fact that uh, she had her newborn. I think it was her first child. Where's Lou? And uh, she had her child, and she said she was ready to come home, and there was no place to go. They were in the process of moving. So she says, I spent the first three days with a newborn in a Holiday Inn. Now, mind you, Holiday Inn, hotel room, hospital room, they're similar to homes, right? There's bathrooms, and there's beds, and there's dressers, and there's light switches, and there's people, and there's food, but way different. You don't want to live the rest of your life in Holiday Inn, Right? You don't want to live the rest of your life in a hospital. You're just visiting that. And in fact, the joy of knowing you're heading home makes the hospital bearable. This is kind of the hospital. We're visiting this place. It's temporary. Our home is eternal. Our home is heaven. That's where we're headed. You're going to have grief while you're not in your home. I'm going to have Hannah in just a moment come up here. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture And we're going to end this morning just celebrating. We're going to celebrate with uh, some song and fun stuff, and we're going to celebrate with some food. But I asked moms also to share what it was like when they were first handed their kid. And I loved Kristen Stonehouse said it better than I possibly could have. She says this, After a mom holds her child for the first time, all the pain is erased from memory, and nothing else exists in the world except yourself, Daddy and baby. You don't notice the doctors or nurses or any noises. It's truly an emotional, surreal, miraculous experience. Moms, you get to have a picture of this like us dads don't quite get to. But for those of us who've been bedside, we get it as well. 
What a moment it's going to be when we're face to face with our Creator. And all the trial and all the grief that we're in right now will dissipate. We're going to sing a song right now and our kids are going to help us do it. And kids, you don't even know about this, but spontaneity is the breath of life. So here we go. Here's the second verse to this. Listen to this. When I stand in that place, free at last, meeting face to face, I am, I am yours, Jesus. You are mine. Band, come on up. Catch this part right here. Endless joy, perfect peace, earthly pain finally will cease. Celebrate. Jesus is alive. He's alive. And that's why we have reason to celebrate is because Jesus not only goes to the cross, but he rises from the dead.